If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now my guest today is the recently retired Master of the High Court, Edmund Honan. The Master of the High Court is not an individual, as the name might suggest, who lords it over the High Court, but effectively an official with quasi-judicial powers to make a range of minor orders and give judgments in uncontested matters. One way of looking at it is as a kind of a clearinghouse or preliminary stage before a matter goes on to a full hearing in the High Court. Now, as might be expected, it's not a particularly high-profile role, but during Ned Honan's tenure, he was often in the headlines because of his approach to the work. This was particularly the case when he dealt with the huge volume of debt and repossession cases that came before him in the years after the economic collapse of 2008. As such, he was seen by some as a champion within the system for the little guy who was taking all the flack from the economic collapse while banks and other lenders appeared to have the law on their side. He also got involved in helping draft legislation in relation to the kind of issues around debts and the law that were coming before him. Not everybody was happy with his approach to the job, and in 2019, the President of the High Court removed from his jurisdiction some of the debt cases that were coming before him. That prompted protest from some members of the public, and indeed also in Leinster House. Edmund Honan, you retired recently. Um, looking back on your time as Master of the High Court, did you enjoy the work? Oh yes, it's it's very enjoyable actually seeing uh, young barristers coming in for the first time and uh, st- stepping on their hind legs and trying to uh, make sense of what they thought they had known about, about the law and try and, and work out how they were going to perform in court. So you have to give them that opportunity. As master, a lot of your work was effectively to deal with the preliminary stage of actions that may be brought to the court and you would decide whether or not for argument's sake, that um, there was a case there that could be advanced or whether that should be the route? Well, uh, the, the first decision would be whether the papers are in order. Mm. So uh, if the papers are not in order, then the case has to be kicked back. It doesn't go into a judge's list. And uh, <clears throat> often there were interesting discussions between us as to what, what <laughs> the papers being in order meant. Justice is a strange thing, yes. <laughs> the question is... Justice is Lord, they're justice not necessarily... Is, uh, yeah, no, the, ju- justice uh, always... Uh, follows it follows behind truth somewhere. It doesn't catch up with truth uh, until you make a decision as to how far down the road you're prepared to go in terms of throwing money at the case. 
And unfortunately, the American system is that you, you bombard the other side with millions of documents and say, here, good luck with that. <laughs> and say, see how you get on with that. And uh, that's, that's an unfortunate... that way here. Yes, we're that way. Yeah. I used to say um, the, the Supreme Court around this time, that was about 2004, 2005, I can't remember the dates exactly, but it said that justice, well, we're going to have to do something about discovery. They said we'll have to only, discovery should really only be ordered where it's, where it's really necessary. That's, that's so they qualified the, rule, the rules in relation to discovery by, say, by adding the word really. And uh, <laughs> so I used to say then in court that, um, that in the high court you'll get discovery if it's really necessary, but in the master's court you'll only get it if it's really, really necessary. <laughs> Very good. Now, it's, I think it's fair to say that Ed, you really came to public attention in the wake of the economic collapse because at that stage... It wasn't my fault. No, no, I'm not <laughs> suggesting it was. But at that stage, um, you're, the courts in general, and you being the first stop to the High Court effectively, if I could simplify mm-hmm. and put it that way, uh, was swamped with, for example, uh, repossession cases and debt cases. The first thing I just want to ask you in, in relation to that, you'd already been master of the High Court for, I think, about seven or eight years yeah. by the time of the economic collapse. Did you notice a big difference in uh, terms of people coming before you that there was far more lay litigants after the economic collapse? Yeah, the worrying thing for me was I would find a couple coming up from Roscommon or from Kerry to appear in the master's court to say, what's this all about? What, what, what do we do next? So the, all possession applications uh, on foot of mortgages which had gone into arrears were to come to Dublin, to come to the high court in Dublin, not down to the circuit court. And uh, I, th- I thought it was an extraordinarily um, um, poorly thought out process that, that the circuit court should be used and uh, Alan Chatter, who was then the Minister for Justice, agreed, and he then uh, made uh, provision for that, that, circ- that the circuit court should have jurisdiction in relation to possession. But pending that, we had a, a stream of lay litigants coming in, um, being completely puzzled as to what was, they were supposed to do. I suppose they <laughs> suppose they'd come up to Dublin thinking that it was no different from the district court or the circuit court down where they, they used to be. Even if they'd ever been in a court before, they probably thought, you come into court... And you'll stand up and tell the judge what the story was. And the judge will then make a decision. But when you come to the High Court, it all has to be written down. They all have to prepare an affidavit. And uh, sometimes you, uh, I was even asked, you know, what is, what is an affidavit? And I'd say, well, look at that other piece of paper there. That's an affidavit. That's what you have to do. How do I go about that? And they would uh, be, just be completely... Uh, it would be completely alien to them to have to sit and, and, and write out a narrative of what they wanted to say. And you're talking in, in, in the main of people there who would be pretty distressed at the times of themselves because these cases involved huge debts that had been run up during the, the so-called boom. Yes, yeah. not only that, but you would have a situation, often a situation where the, the, uh, one of the spouses would not have told the other spouse of the problem <laughs> and, and they would arrive up. And I... You would have to actually uh, consider seriously whether they were getting a fair hearing at all. And at, at, at that stage then, it seemed to me to be appropriate that if I was going to be rigorous in relation to the matter, that I would have to make sure that the bank's papers were in order. And that would involve a dispute with the, the bank's barrister as to whether or not the papers he had produced uh, corresponded with or uh, complied with the rules. And uh, it ended up being a situation where uh, the impression was created that I was against the banks because that's, that cases would would fall because the bank's paperwork was not not adequate or the exhibits were not 
stapled together and all sorts of strange things that you would use as um, as legitimate uh, breaks on the process to allow the lay litigant to prepare his defence. And the difficulty there was that um, you can see whether if you're looking at the bank's paperwork and saying, are, are the papers in order? The, the persons you're actually attacking are the lawyers because they're the ones who prepared the papers. So it became very, very tetchy and very personal to the lawyers appearing in front of me that I was criticising them, in effect. I wasn't, although it came out in the press that I was criticising the banks, the banks would say to the lawyers, well, you prepared the draft and I signed it. And so I'm sure there were a lot of uh, anxious encounters between banks and their solicitors and uh, and the excuse was often proffered to them I'm sure oh well you know that's the master he's straight he's like that he's a bit eccentric but you were you were in a position there effectively and I think this was appreciated by both the public and and, and those in politics you were in a, posi- a position where there was because you had lay litigants coming up who had these major debts and they were in conflict with the bank it was a very uneven playing field and you were effectively the referee there and and, and therefore as you say you you had to ensure that those who were well represented were presenting everything as they were obliged to do according to the law. Uh, That was my uh, official function but in addition to that I had to have regard to the human rights aspect uh, and the uh, Article 6 provisions that Mary Robinson managed to have highlighted for us um, in the early case, that, that, the, that the litigants, both sides, were to be able to effectively participate in the litigation. Now, if you look at that and you look at the legal team on one side and you look at the lay litigants on the other and you say, how do I actually re-structure re, um, this encounter to ensure that the lay litigant is, understands what's happening uh, and is, is able to uh, respond to the best of his ability? And sometimes you would have to try and explain to the lay litigants that uh, that the uh, lawyers for the for the bank would be would be citing case law, or or statute, which would be completely alien to to the lay litigant. And you'd say, oh, they're going to rely on such and such a case and such and such a case, and you better go and read them. Now that's about as far as you could go. But you, at least you had, if you like, broken the ice for the lay litigants, so they would they would go off. Then I'd, I'd give them a, a time to consider where they were at, and. Um, that would be the, um, uh, the the mechanism I would use to try and try and. There, there was it, it 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 was interesting though. The phenomenon that I saw was, and people don't comment on this, that there was a lot of talk at the time about the tsunami, of of um, yeah. they call them repossessions, but actually that's not the correct word. The I'm order of possession. That, yeah, I'll come back to that now in a second. So the tsunami of possessions, it it didn't occur to the extent that we anticipated it because we knew all the the figures about default. And then we had a, a steady stream of people being being picked on by the banks. But then it tapered off, and there was a reason for that. And I think it was because of the general um, uh, revulsion on the part of the media and so on and so forth to the notion of, of, of uh, evictions and so on. And the banks backed off. Uh, they said, well, hold on a second now. We're, this is not good for our PR here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, only in the more serious cases did they find that they had, uh, uh, they felt that there was a, uh, a benefit for them to pursue the matter but they backed off and then the government said well we'll, we'll come up with a solution to this there was the Keane report first of all and that said we'll have to find mechanisms to help these people who are in difficulty that took two years and then the bank said or the government said well we'll have to produce a, a new insolvency procedure because the, bank, the old bankruptcy procedure which meant you were kind of effectively uh, locked up at home for 12 years and that was ridiculous 
And uh, that took more time. And the bank said, well, at least we can just take the f foot off the pedal here uh, while the government is trying to get its insolvency processes in order. And we ending up, as you know, with the final um, uh, step here is where the, the government uh, introduced a, a mechanism whereby the court could overrule a bank's veto. A bank yeah. would have a veto in an insolvency situation. The banks could, or the court could overrule it in a situation where the family home could be ring-fenced. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You ended up in the media a few times because of the cases that came before you and your reaction to them. And just one I noticed there from 2011 where you said... Um, uh, you commented about widows coming before you after meaningless accountancy exercises that drove their husbands to suicide. And you went further then a few days later when you identified the problem as being that the Department of Finance doesn't know the law and the Department of Justice doesn't know economics. So we, have a hu we don't have a humanitarian scheme of debt forgiveness. That was the kind of thing that was coming before you on a very regular basis. Yeah, I could, I could see it in the, in the, in the widow's eyes when she would come in and say I'm, I'm sorry my husband he's the first name defendant but he's not here he's he's passed <laughs> and uh, you couldn't let that go without uh, being sympathetic to her and finding out a little bit more about why she was in this state of distress and so there's there's nothing for it but uh, if that's a, if that's a, a moral uh, tool that you can use to um, to correct the behavior of the banks uh, uh, to ensure that they act ethically, then you 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 must deploy it. You have no um, choice really but to uh, call call the journalists in and say this has to stop. Call the journalists in. Yes. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. So to ensure that they, that, yeah, that, that, that it was go word was going out. There well, that's, that's I mean, I yeah. used to I used to prepare written decisions and cir circulated for for publication because journalists generally you may not know this, but <laughs> they they like to take uh, press releases and to cut and paste bits out oh, of it. Oh, no, but, no, 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 no. <laughs> but that, it was necessary to, um, to um, perhaps overgill the lily hype, to yeah. hype it in order to ensure that an editor would say, this is worth printing. Uh, and that message would get back to the banks and they would, they would uh, uh, be a little bit more careful in relation to how they dealt with uh, cases. Yeah. I mean, you would have cases being brought by a bank where they knew that one of the defendants had died. You know, that's really? Yeah. So, I mean, it was, that was, uh, th you might say it was a, a message that didn't get back to the bank. You know, that, I, that's where I think the problem is. That this was a message that may have got to the solicitor for the bank, but he'd been given a box of papers saying, these are all your files, go and get orders for possession, all of them. And he wouldn't think it necessary to go back and check with the bank to see whether they really wanted them to proceed in this case. And we've had a recently, recently a, a spate of cases where, the defences that have been put up are getting more and more sophisticated, as I refer to EU law and so on and so forth. And um, a, a, a phenomenon that I'm concerned about is the fact that cases can go from the High Court into the Court of Appeal and even further up. 
and the case the issues can be raised that can be can be very it can be very belligerent um, um, uh, exchanges between the parties, and then at the last minute, at the last minute, the bank throws in the towel. In other words, they've pushed it that far. They push then... it. They hope the other side will go away. Yeah, and they because they say secretly they say we're not going to get away with this. <laughs> if if the if the truth comes out, we're going to lose this case. And eventually they say, ah, here, go away. We we, we pay your costs, and that's it. Now that that seems to me to suggest. That there are pe- oh, there's another aspect to it, which is the non-disclosure agreement. So that particular case, which might have led to a, a, a precedent decision in the Supreme Court or whatever, is dead. We, right. we don't hear any more about it. We don't know what the issue was. The banks know, but we won't know. And that brings me to another element too. And, and again, you would, have, you would have encountered this. As you say, some, in a situation like that, the, the, the well-resourced side or entity can push the thing so far and rack up the costs on, in the hope that the other side will cave in. But when it comes to that, and that's featured, I think, in right across the law in some areas, it really highlights that the cost of going to court, particularly for what you might call the man or woman in the street, is prohibitive and that immediately it's an unequal battle if you're up against a well-resourced entity, for example, like a bank. Yeah, that's, I mean, we needn't even discuss that. Everybody knows that to be the case. There are recent decisions uh, coming down the line from some of the more uh, um, imaginative judges who say we're going to start making preliminary cost orders restricting the level of costs that can be incurred or liability for costs that can be incurred uh, and uh, protective cost orders, I think they're called, and, and so on. So there, there, are, there are steps being taken to try and ensure that, that the court system isn't abused in the way you've described, because that is, it is an abuse to say, I'm going to require the other side to spend a load of money. And did you see a lot of that? Uh, you, you can never be sure, because you don't know whether or not the case that's being advanced one way or another is going to be a, a good case or a bad case. So you can't simply say uh, that they knowingly... Um, push the other side into incurring costs. But the mere fact that the costs are so much means that that is, can be a strategy with some. Oh yes, it, and it certainly is, yes. The step that should be taken, in my view, is that uh, an opportunity should be given for um, a, um, a low-cost exchange with somebody, such as the master, yeah. who will look at the papers and say, uh, this is, you, need, you need to look at this, or you need to look at that, or um, there's a, um, we can cut that out or that's not a defence or so on and so forth. You need to have a, a situation where uh, some, some um, like a public prosecutor, except the other way around, yeah. a public defender yeah. should sit in and say, we can, we can, we can get to a quicker solution here if, if we focus on this, on this issue. Which on one level would make the courts more accessible to... Oh, yes, people. absolutely, yes. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's your basic argument for legal aid. So, uh, well, exactly, but yeah. It, it, in the English system, the legal aid system in, the, in England is, is that you, you engage a solicitor who's, who's on the panel and then the solicitor will be paid uh, standard rates and so on and so forth for civil, civil legal aid. Uh, which we really don't have that here. No, very restricted in terms of legal aid. Oh, absolutely, in, yes, yeah. In, in, in the civil courts. But can we afford it? Well, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is the cost of going to court in general is so prohibitive can we afford not to? Uh, but it's only, it's only impacts on individuals, you see. It doesn't impact on society, does it? Well, yeah, but in <laughs> that's the, the well, that's, uh, individuals <laughs> make up the society. Like, you and know, so unfortunately, the individuals 
are yeah no they don't actually make up the society they're they're uh, collateral damage uh, and then the difficulty is you'd say well yes of course litigation is expensive but i mean that's it, it costs that much to get to get to the truth of the matter but it's it's not just cash is involved there's the human dignity is is, yeah. is in play here for Absolutely. the litigants and they're being denied the right to effective participation and in some cases the the prospect of going to court is so uh, awful for them that you know they'll just um check out in a lot of cases i mean i've even come across individuals like that that they believe they've been done an injustice they believe yeah. that there's a good chance that the law is on their side but what they would have to gamble and what it would yeah. mean to them in terms of years of stress etc it's just not worth it well they they may not even know what that is they may, they may may have a, they may just know generally speaking that if they go down that road their chances of uh bringing the bacon home yeah. are very very remote exactly and and they'll say sure i'm not going to get justice anyway so that the, the reputation of the courts is at stake if people have, have formed that view that you know you can go up to dublin but you good luck with that that's, exactly yeah yeah that's, so that's that's another when you say can we afford legal aid the answer is we can afford legal aid if we want the legal system the justice system to be uh, respected Absolutely. Now, another element to your, your tenure as master, uh, Ed, was um, you were involved in drafting some legislation which you felt would be helpful in relation to the type of stuff that came before you. Yeah. Even before I was master, I was involved uh, in, you know, for, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, um, a systems man and I can come up with ideas. And uh, it seemed to me straight away that if we were going to have a problem with um, repossessions or possessions and people being evicted and so on and so forth, that we needed to get a grip on um, certain aspects of, say, compulsory purchase and uh, rental systems and so on and so forth. And it, then you you look around and you say, well, well, I'm sure the government is going to do that. And then nothing happens. <laughs> so <laughs> then you say, well, surely somebody can, surely some lawyers are going to get together and come up with the and then you find, oh well, actually no, they're 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 uh, compromised in some way because they are acting for a bank or so, and they don't actually have the um, the time or uh, the interest really in 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 taking a step back and saying where can we go with this? And um, I was always, as a child, I was always interested in what went on with the law and so on and so forth, and I used to um, have chats with politicians from time to time. But they always needed more information. If you come up with an idea, they'll say, "Gosh, that sounds very interesting." They say, but uh, has it been done anywhere else? So they, they didn't really understand what the idea was, but if it had been done somewhere else, it must be all right. Yeah. So, but that's the level of level of uh, engagement for a backbencher. And he says, I, I, yeah, I'll go with it if you can tell me it's been done somewhere else. So I, I have done three bills in so far, so far. The first one was uh, the most interesting one in my view. It was uh, the National Housing Cooperative because it seemed to me we needed a big bang approach which involved... Uh, taking all of local authority rental accommodation, all repossessed houses and all other, if you like, social housing from the uh, the um, AHBs and um, putting them all under the one umbrella, creating a, a cooperative. Now you say, well, well that's just that's just uh, moving the the deck chairs on the Titanic. But, and I had a view that no, no, that wasn't what it involved: engaging and 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 uh, dealing with people as members of a cooperative. Yeah. So suddenly you're no longer just renting from an AHB, you're, you're actually now a member of the cooperative and you've got a, a, a cell in relation to your block, whatever like that. And, like and being a member of credit union. That's it, extent. yes. Yeah. And if, 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 the, if 
if, if you like, the, the renters in, in society, including the defaulting mortgagors, realised that they hadn't lost everything, that they, they had an equity as members of a cooperative, that they had a responsibility as members of a cooperative and, uh, and benefits as members of a cooperative, that you could lift all of, all of local authority housing into a new um, era, if you like. Yeah. Uh, Leo Radcar wrote back and said, "Sorry, the teacher couldn't be the chairman of the of the co- national cooperative." Uh, so that, <laughs> that was the end of that bill. So what? I had to, I redrafted that. Then it became the affordable housing bill, and that involved uh, uh, bringing into play um, various EU regulations in relation to consumer law and so on and so forth. And uh, and uh, I can't remember now. There was it was in a, there were um, mechanisms for. Um, dealing with mortgages in arrears and dealing with other aspects of, of housing and so on and so forth. That that was uh, another bill that was introduced. That and was at the request of Oil. About that, is there any, does any issue arise there about the separation of powers? I mean, you, you, you're you not no, a member no, of the I judiciary, no. but you are, you have a quasi-judicial role and you're in the courts. Yeah. Is there any issue there over the fact moving over to the legislature? No. No. <laughs> there isn't, because nothing I decide as master is done and dusted. I'm with you. And uh, there's an automatic right to uh, refer or review the master's decisions to the High Court. Actually, I came across the other day, I was quite amused. There was, in in 1928, they had to legislate for the master. (laughs) Apparently, the new rules that were introduced in in 1926, uh, new rules of court, and they have them here, actually, that's that's some there, uh, contained an ambiguity. And the master of the time, I don't know who it was, but he, he he carried on making uh, summary judgment orders uh, until, the, the, uh, until the Supreme Court decided that he didn't have jurisdiction and the, <laughs> said as part of the debate on the new bill, which was introduced by Dev, I think, he, he says that um, people are not quite sure what the master's jurisdiction is. In fact, <laughs> it's probably the case that the master himself doesn't understand what his jurisdiction <laughs> is. I thought, that was very funny. That was in a debate in 1929. And, uh, and, that, and that is the uh, position that I occupy as master. In other words, I can be uh, adventurous yeah. uh, without prejudicing either side. Yeah. Now, uh, in 2019, the President of the High Court, uh, they took death cases from your jurisdiction. There was reaction to that. There was reaction in the Dáil, where the move was called a scandal. There was also reaction from the public. I think there was a, a petition started up somebody, out, members of the public. Um, how did you feel about that? Embarrassed, uh, embarrassed by the public support. Uh, How did you feel about the, the, those cases being taken away? Yeah, from I, I couldn't figure out what the, the justification was. It seemed to me to actually to be uh, a decision by the president of the High Court, which he was not, which he had no jurisdiction to make. And um, uh, but I wasn't going to um, cause a cause a an internal row about that. But it do, did seem to me that the pattern that I had established, which was, which was uh, in effect a, a, a breaking pattern, a, a delaying pattern on banks, was causing problems. And that it was felt that um, c- certain parties might uh, be happier if, if I wasn't dealing with the cases at all. Yes, it would seem that all you were really doing was going according to the letter of law and ensuring that all the banks were doing exactly as they were supposed to. Yeah, where, as where the paper's in order. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I think one of the difficulties was that I had started to write decisions which are like judgments only. They're not, not uh, de- definition. They're not uh, uh, binding on anybody. And I had done so. I had done dozens of them, literally, about 
summary judgment and about discovery and, and so on and so forth, all of which all of which were designed to help the barristers who were before me to um, to understand how how I approach things and how the 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 law has had uh, dictated the position we were, we happen to find ourselves in, and these decisions began to be taken up by lay litigants and quoted downstairs in the High Court, and I think that annoyed uh, some judges. Won't mention any names, and um, I, they decided that that this this is not this is just. Um, um, uh, self self aggrandizement on the part of the master, whereas in fact I was only trying to help the, the barristers. See, if you're a young barrister and you go in before the master and you lose the application, you have to go back to your sister and say, "We'll ask the application before the following reasons." And the solicitor says, "Well, you mustn't be a good barrister. You know, yeah. I won't use you again." But if you can go back to the solicitor and say, "Well, I lost because the master has always done the following, and here is the proof of that, and it was your paperwork that was wrong," <laughs> so so at least that. That that helped. Um, it helped the atmosphere in court. Yeah. That, that we we knew where we were going. And do you think that you were regarded? I mean, you weren't a judge, but you had a quasi-judicial role, and 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 you would have a lot of engagement in terms of with the courts. Do you think you were regarded as something of an outsider? Uh, well, I think I think opinions are mixed. I know one judge called me a renegade at one stage which annoyed me at the time. I can like, imagine. I, 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 until I discovered that there's a book about Obama and uh, the boss uh, as, uh, as, uh, as renegades. It's called Renegades. So I thought, oh, it's not right. It's okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I, think, I think they felt no previous master has been annoying us like this. So no previous what, master faced what you faced in terms of the follow-up from the yeah, economic That collapse. is true, yeah. And... Um, I, nobody came and said thank you. <laughs> well, that's not correct. Uh, there have been a number of letters since my retirement you know, saying uh, appreciative of the work I had done. So, uh, because I've had, I've had, uh, I've trained even quite a few of the high court judges at the moment, and they're they're showing the benefits of that training. Well, that's <laughs> like good. Yeah. That <laughs> hopefully, it's, hopefully it's um, it's appreciated. Um, as I say, because of the high profile nature of some of the. Um, the decisions you took, and I, as I say, I think a lot of them, both in terms of uh, politicians and the public, were regarded as being helpful to what was a very tense situation for an awful lot of people at the time. So you were, you, you were often um, in the media as a result and that kind of thing. Uh, there was one incident I just have to ask you about, and that was the broken window. Oh, yeah. What occurred that that? Uh, win- a window. They call it a window, but actually, it's a small panel above the, above the, the the window at the back of the court. And uh, there was a there was I called it a fog at the time. Um, the, the, traditionally, the master's court has been a, a sweaty place, mm. and uh, for some strange physically reason, and metaphorically. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yes, and it, it was just no. I th- I decided that there was only way the only way we could get a cross flow of air would be to open those windows at the back. Um, Three three small panes, sort of, sort of four inch by six inch panes, and uh, I, mean, I was under pressure, I suppose, at the time. But uh, so I broke those windows uh, one day after finishing after finishing work to create a, a through flow from the bottom of the court to the, the top of the court. I put a note on them saying, "Please do not re replace the windows." Well, that was it. So that's that was the reason for it. Yeah, it had to be um, done, as you say. But I think I think there was people were puzzled as to why I would actually do that. But I, I've always been a, a, a get up and go person, and I, I got this. This has gone on too long. I got a letter actually from another barrister uh, saying that uh, he he remembered 
that um, complaints had been made about the about the air in the master's court uh, years and years ago. And he said he's now working down in the uh, CCJ, the criminal place down the road here. And he says it's 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 almost as bad. He said in terms of circulation of air. I did, it didn't have any air conditioning in the, in the yeah, everything. Yeah, nothing yeah. worked properly, you know. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was the. Uh, I got a bill afterwards. You got a bill for the broken. Yes, window. yeah. They sent me a bill for eight hundred euros. Eight hundred euros. Yeah, yeah. Did it's, you pay it? No. <laughs> um, and tell me, and, and as I mentioned before, with legislation, and you were involved recently in drafting a bill with some of the rural independents in terms of um, the impaired farm credit bill. Yeah. Again, this is an issue that came across and, and, and that's issues that arise with farmers who, who end up into uh, a lot of debt. Yeah, it's um, it's a very interesting topic. I'm an economist, you see, so I, I, I have a good grasp of, of uh, banking and so on. And, and the, the, the world has been transformed in terms of the development of shadow banking uh, and uh, in disintermediation by the banks themselves, and it's, it seems to me that the traditional role of the banks in relation to farming was was rapidly being lost, and the farmers are being left in a situation where they'd have to try and um, struggle on without credit, or else take credit at, at uh, uh, penal rates of interest from peer to peer on a peer to peer basis, or from shadow banks. But and we needed uh, needed uh, intervention in that regard. Particularly as the uh, the, bank, uh, the farmers, if you if you if you um, want to get a loan, you have to explain that you have a cash flow and there's uh, there's going to be a profit next year. And the banks look at look askance at you and say, "Well, you said that to us last year, but now you're in arrears," and it's just completely completely risky lending from the bank's point of view. And uh, it, we need we needed to take account, and we do need to take account of the uh, modern um, uh, capital markets. Uh, somebody said to me, um, he said, isn't what you're doing something similar to the subprime market in America? And in a way, he's right, because the subprime market was about the risky and riskier and riskiest mortgages, which Bill Clinton decided people should be have available. They were all bundled together. So you had tranches of really good mortgages and middle-range mortgages and very poor mortgages, and they were tranched. They were bundled together by the loan originators and remarketed at reasonable rates of interest to investment funds. Now, so in other words, you you actually merge the risk into into a a, mm. a, um, a range of, of of returns, and in this way, there is a, there is a, an opportunity, uh, certainly through the Brussels legislation, of cre- of creating a, a access to alternative investment funds yeah. for farming. Now you go, you you could mention this in a letter to the minister, or you could write to a backbencher or something like that. You can see the letter would would end up in a in a in, a, in an in-tray somewhere and wouldn't wouldn't be considered. The only way of dealing with it, uh, I was prompted by Michael Fitzmaurice. He said, "Can you not do something for the farmers?" And I said, "Well, of course the farmers are very rich." And he said, "Oh no no no, they may they may have land which is worth something, but they're still scraping the bottom of the bottom of the barrel." One of the cases I had de- I dealt with <clears throat> was. Um, a farmer who who um, was in arrears, and the um, the the creditor, the bank, uh, started to seize his uh, EU payment, his single payment. As uh, it's pretty extreme e- equitable receivership, and I thought that can't be right. You know, um, sure, you you can't seize somebody's wages, their 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 future earnings, their. And I wrote to the Minister for Agriculture at the time and said, you need to look into this. 
And uh, as luck would have it, nothing's been done about it. And there's there's been a, a decision. Or there was a decision in the Supreme Court where they decided, almost reluctantly, that yes, a creditor could take EU farm payments. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's really tying the hands of the farmer behind his back. Not one hand, but both hands. Absolutely. So the, the, bill I, the bill I drafted for Michael Fitzmaurice for the rural group uh, involves... Um, involves a, 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 a unique or a su- sui generous uh, um, tr- transition arrangement for a farmer who's in, who's in, in arrears, who's in, in default. And it's funnily enough, after I drafted it, I discovered that they have, they have exactly the same model in America. <laughs> you, know, you know the Chapter 11 model for big oh, airlines? Yeah, yeah. Well, blow, blow me, but isn't there a Chapter 12? There's a Chapter 12 of the same act and it's about farmers and fishermen. Sure. So, I mean, there has it been done before? That's the question I'm asked. The answer, yeah, it has been done before. Why hasn't it been done now? Don't ask me, but the best thing I can do is put together a bill. Very good. One final thing, Ed. Um, you reached the statutory retirement age. Um, you're quite obviously very fit and active and eager, if I might put it that way. Would you like to have gone on longer? Do you think there should be a facility for people to go beyond? I think 70 is the retirement age in your job, do you think there should be um, a route for people to go on longer if they so wish? Well, uh, judges in the old days used to carry on, like like the US Supreme Court, carry on until they drop dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we have a number of judges who went into their late 80s and their 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 competence was discussed in the House of Commons. You know, <laughs> is this man really still a judge in Dublin, you know? <laughs> and... Um, I suppose you, you do what you can during a period, and the period was 1921 or whatever it is to now, and that's, if you like, history now, and I don't know where we're now. Uh, can I contribute more by doing something else now than by carrying on with the same old routine? And that Maybe that's it. I, I don't know. It's rest à voir. Wait and see. Ed Honan, thank you very much. Not at all. Thank you, Michael. That's it for this week. Folks, uh, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.